Welcome back to the Get Ready Podcast. I'm your co-host, Credit. Alongside me, as always, is Grant. Today, we got a great show for you. We're going back to the book review, and this week, we're going to cover what I'm going to call Grant's favorite investor, Peter Thiel, his book, Zero to One, uh, about investing in startups and investing in how to make a great startup. And um, Grant, what's going on, pal? Like, we're going to jump into that. You know, what are your what are your initial thoughts? How have you been? Uh, I'm good. I mean, I love book club, probably my favorite time of the year or, you know, it happens what once a month. So uh, it's good. Book club's fun. We read a book and this is one of my favorite books, if not the leading favorite specifically from 2020. Uh, and Peter Thiel was an investor that I, that I followed heavily. I actually really didn't know who he was until I read a, a book on Elon Musk a while back. It was probably four or five years ago, figuring out who Elon Musk was. And, and, and in the book, uh, Elon and him didn't really have a great relationship and it, it kind of gives you a distaste uh, uh, that derived from this book about Elon, about Peter Thiel himself and made you kind of pro Elon Musk. I really, I had this awesome analogy I want to share with you because I was thinking about it the other day. And I was like, Elon Musk is like Iron Man in the Avengers and uh, Peter Thiel is like Captain America where you're like, everyone loves Iron Man. He's the man. You know, he's, he's the fucking man. He's got all the cool the toys. He's smart. He's, he's arrogant, narcissistic, but he's lovable. Billionaire, playboy, philanthropist. Yeah, everyone genius. wants to be him. And then you see like Captain America, and he's, he's just vanilla, basically. Like, ah, I don't want to be that guy. I'm like, yeah, but he's the captain. He's the one running the ship. Like, on a macro level, he's the most important guy. <laughs> so, uh, that being said, you know, they kind of had this little civil war between each other at PayPal. Obviously, Peter Thiel won, ran it for a long time. Elon Musk took his money, started a whole bunch of companies, and now he's what the second richest man in the world. So, uh, random tangent. I thought of the Avengers. I think this is a good analogy between the two in terms of like who's who. And uh, I followed Peter Thiel for a while after that. And I saw that he started investing in a bunch of companies. Uh, Palantir is one that I know of, uh, among other hedge funds. And he's uh, he's really changing the world, and he does a good job of it. And when you listen to this book, you're like, holy shit, this guy knows what he's talking about. This is an awesome book. And I, you know, hopefully it's a trigger for people to maybe hit something in them to start. Start doing something, maybe get a second income, second stream, thinking for yourself, not be so bureaucratic and maybe kind of be your own boss. That's a general theme. That's what I kind of got from it. It's like, hey, man, you can really do a lot if you just focus on, uh, on this thing or that thing or whatever it is. And uh, it struck a chord with me. And now I'm down, you know, six, seven months down the road and doing a lot more from it. But what do you think? The big thing I took away from it is how to analyze a really good business idea. So I do a little bit of angel investing on the side. I also do, you know, I work at a day job. I go in there, I have a career. Um, I, I really liked, you know, how, how do you not necessarily just continue to spread horizontally, which is a big clue. It's like, how do you go up? How do you own a vertical? Like, how do you own a market? Um, and I'm really dealing with this with one of the startups I'm investing in. They want to create all these products. And I'm like, no, if you create all these products and become too big too fast, people will come and get you, right? You want to have one very narrow product. You want to have one thing you're better at than everybody else, right? So I look at basketball. Grant, what are you better than everybody else? You, you got a little semi-shake. You got a left-hand finish. You're the best, like, close-range finisher in the game, right? When we're playing pickup ball. Mine is the fadeaway. Like, yeah, the fadeaway <laughs> Yeah, the fadeaway sets up my entire game. If I'm not making the fadeaway, I'm a trash can, right? So, um, you know, you you can always, like, you're the workhorse. You can always go and finish inside. Me, I've got to be on. I'm more like the Tesla Roadster. i got to be hot, but if, <laughs> when I run out of juice, I'm done. I'm, I'm worthless. I'm a paperweight. Oh, that's, that's great. What I'm trying to illustrate is you've got to be very, very, very good at one small, small thing. 
And if you're very good at that one thing and solving a problem, um, then from there, that's when you penetrate the market at solving this very specific problem. And then you can expand the market from there. So you gain entrenchment very small, right? You're placing one. So you're basically pasting a bunch of spies in the market, right? And then it's time to expand and then you grow your empire from there. That's how I kind of thought the zero to one. Yeah, it's super cool. I know what you're saying. You're really just trying to say like, you know, the horizontal way of things is really just like you copying everything everyone's doing. Like, hey, let's, let's just build a better mousetrap. Let's just build another wheel. It's like, well, we already have a wheel. Why don't you build something uh, that'll get us there quicker that doesn't even need a wheel or gas, you know? Like, why don't you get a hydrogen fuel cell to do a hyperloop train? Uh, it's basically history's reward, not history. Uh, the world rewards people who take risk into a vertical uh, field that's not really there yet and you're, you're, you're just trying to make it a, a common place for humanity to become a better place and have a just cause and uh yeah i mean elon musk that's kind of what his whole fabric is and that's why he's so fascinating because everything he touches like yeah he crushes it i'm like yeah but everything he touches there's no field for it like there's just no industry like he's starting the industry and while he doesn't always live up to a lot of his promises at least the guy himself begins some form of a category where other people come in, smarter people come in and start to work on it every day, 24 seven. And it's cool. I, I, that's a good analogy to it, a horizontal vertical way of thinking. And uh, you want to just kind of go down these chapters and talk about what we thought in each way. Yeah, I think it's time. Let's just jump into the book. So the first thing is I, I want to look at the analysis, right? The overarching theme. So here's what, you know, you kind of take away real quick, just broadly is it talks about monopolies. Monopolies are not bad. They are good if they're good monopolies, right? If they're good and they add value to society. Uh, you know, founders are important. I'm sorry, but I, I couldn't run Tesla or SpaceX. It's just not, not who I am. Like Elon Musk absolutely matters. Founders and other, like Mark Zuckerberg absolutely matters. Bezos matters. And then like cults aren't terrible. Like everybody calls Tesla a cult. Like that, that's not a bad call. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's like Jamestown, bad cult, or Jonestown, that bad cult. Like you shouldn't kill people, but <laughs> creating cult. fervor around a product or a company is not a bad thing. And then like, what are the pieces that make a really thriving company? So I think we're going to go through, we're going to cover a lot of these topics, but let's just jump into kind of chapter one. And that's challenge the future. What were some of the, the key things that you kind of took away and just kind of the, some of the quips that you have? And I, we, we, I kind of stole this one from you from my recap of the book. No, I mean, chapter one really set the tone for everything. He, you know, Peter Thiel's contrarian. And really what that means is Peter Thiel's like the 1%. And he always, he's always thinking against the public. And he's always uh, thinking of a, just the opposite line. Uh, he has this, this, general question he asks all the time in all of his interviews and it's really a philosophy of his and he says what important truth do very people uh people agree with you on meaning like what does 99 percent of the world think to be true but you actually think the opposite and you're right uh outside of god and other things that are just really uh very subjective so you know one thing that i always thought about and i know this is your favorite answer is bitcoin right i mean everyone thinks bitcoin is just so ubiquitous nowadays and if you think about it like yeah people see it everywhere but it's still only one percent of the world really acquires it and owns it and it's it's still that contrarian mindset to flip to that a lot of people will never give up on there's always going to be that faction of society but there's always going to be uh, the progressive beginners like you and i and then there's going to be a huge middle part of this entire equation that eventually takes an adoption over the next 5 10 15 years i don't know how long it's going to be i've never been a part of something like this from a fiscal perspective so I think Bitcoin was one of our answers for sure. I hate to say that because it's beating a dead horse on this pod. 
another one that I really thought about was uh, my industry in college athletics and just the whole collegiate system. I, I just think it's broken. Uh, it's almost too broken. And, and I think you're going to see a huge downtrend of people going to college and they're just going to start to find their way through acquiring just kind of micro skills, might, might I add. Like someone wants to be an accountant, like you could just go to some school for eight months and become an accountant and not need that four-year degree. And then a specializ specialization is a master's. And a, all those things won't be as is tough to get in the future. It'll be tough to get, but they won't be as uh, bureaucratic and university, UCLA, Utah, all these universities that want you to come and spend bun a bunch of money, stay on campus. Like that experience will be available, but a lot more be available, but a lot more of those experiences moving forward in the future will be like uh, e-learning really. I think that's gonna be huge moving forward. And uh, I think college is gonna start to dwindle big time. I think college sports is gonna start to get crushed completely. You're gonna see, I think over the next decade, like 75% of the schools just opt out of college sports altogether. That's my hypothesis. I know everyone's like, no, college football is gonna be around forever. I'm like, yeah, that might, but the other 19 support, sports it supports, 18 of those won't. And then what, is it really college athletics anymore? <laughs> so that, that's my contrarian view what about you the question what important truth do very people agree with you on do you have any yeah outside of the coin i want to make a couple comments on you yeah, because go ahead. You're, Talk. you're doing exactly what you should be doing like you're taking something that seems so impossible like what do you mean college sports we're always going to have college sports so like it's college. Then you're saying yeah. why mm -hmm. tell me why like and and that's when we go down a little deeper and we talk about Musk and we talk about Peter Thiel. Like you talk, think about from a first principles perspective, like why do we need these other sports that absolutely cost money? At the end of the day, money, well, money technically is free, but like it, is, it shouldn't yeah. be, right? Like you shouldn't be able, if you are not producing goods, you should not get paid in goods. I know it sounds... Uh, um, trust me, we're good people, but like, that's just how, like, if you are not a productive member of society, you should not produce goods, not bashing on people will actually absolutely, you know, disclaimer will make exceptions for certain situations, but you are doing the right thing. You're trying to go into a very thing that everyone thinks going to exist forever. I completely agree with you that I do not think college sports as they exist today will exist forever. They just simply can't. They are a drain on the economy or whatever the university as a whole, they rely on one source of income. That source of income was damaged this year pretty significantly. I think 30% of revenue is what they got versus, you know, 30% of their typical revenue slice. That's generous. Right or wrong. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's generous. Let me, let me add to this equation too. And why I think this, this is the way it is. Not only do I work in it, um, but think of college sports as a whole, right, Josh? Like you just think of college sports. Like what is it? College sports is really a feeder system to all of our professional sports. It's like our weeding out process. You know, you want to be a doctor? Well, go to college. And, you know, if you make it through eight years and you're good enough, you'll be a doctor. Uh, college sports is just like that. If you're good enough at the college football level, you'll go, you'll go pro. People will find you. It's, I mean, every school plays. Uh, those feeder systems are already, there's already tryouts. There's the AAF, there's the X, uh, XFL, like these things are popping up. Like they'll just eventually replace that and it'll be cheaper and they could float those through like in private investing money and it won't be public money to go to a university that's government funded and, you know, everyone gets a hall pass for four years like that. That just doesn't feel, and what I work in, that doesn't feel like that direction could be sustained. And we saw it one year of a pandemic and all these people who like didn't get to play their spring season want to come back. And then the recruiting teams that are coming in, couldn't, they're like, they're not meshing well. There's not enough money because it was this like equal balance. It was like kind of Thanos doing this, but uh, it happened. And now you're like, shit, like 
we, we didn't really mean to defund the police. You know, that's kind of what it felt like. And uh, I know I'm all over the map, but that's what college athletics feels like being in it. You're like, it sounds cool on paper until you do it. And you're like, wow, we're fucked. You know, like, and then like two, three, four more years of this, 10 more years of it. When you see all these private investors putting up money to just start these own leagues for cheaper and uh, kids can go to the G league now and make money. Like this is all college sports. Like why do we need college sports when there's better funded places to do it that are better feeder systems? And uh, that's why I thought that anyways, go ahead. You have that guy in the G league. That's like 38 years old. He's still, <laughs> he's playing basketball for a living. He's probably making up 70, 80 grand a year. And he's got half the year off. Oh like, yeah. And the other half's paid for it. You know, he got his bills paid for. He probably lives in a house. That's I mean, he's leasing for, for cheap. It's, uh, sports will always be around. I just don't think college sports will continue. There's just they're hemorrhaging money from a university that's built off of education. So it's just not. It doesn't work out. Yep. Uh, I, a friend of mine made a very good point. Last comment on this subject uh, that the University of Utah has expanded significantly since they joined the Pac-12. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that because I've only known them in the Pac-12, and they're like, <laughs> no, no, no. Look at all these. They're building a new building every year, you know, because they got all this freaking money from the tv rights and whatnot and at some point when you waste that money it's going to come back to bite you it it bit a lot of people in this year and i'm sorry but that money printer can't run forever okay we get on a tangent i'm about to go down a bitcoin rabbit hole i don't mean to do do it do i want to hear you the challenge of the future you know what what important truth so i'm going to steal this from a very good friend of ours uh brian watson you put him on this book he really loved it Uh, he called me uh we were driving up to wendover which is where you gamble in utah uh, one day and we were just like, let's have a, like a, a weirder conversation. Like what's going to, what's valuable today that would be invaluable in the future. And he smart enough as he is, like he was able to say oil. And that was like three, four years ago. And I was like, okay. Um, and then I started reading a lot more books and not about that, but that oil thing keep came coming up in like different ways. Like if you look at the history of the value of oil, in the 1500s, it was worth nothing. In the 1600s, it was worth nothing. In the 1700s, it was worth nothing. In the 18s, zero. 19s, zero. 20s had a pretty good run. You know, 21st yeah. century coming in, it's pretty much died off. We had peak oil. We're never going back. And then I started thinking about other commodities around the world. Well, gold's got a pretty good use, like history of store of value. Bitcoin may get it, but it's still going to be, it's not going to die tomorrow. But then I thought about the most other common commodity in the world is steel. Well, I tell you what, steel has been the most valuable commodity in the history of the world. It's made weapons. It's made buildings. It's It's the infrastructure for everything almost. It's the infrastructure. It's the most common thing in the world. And yet it's the strongest thing in the world, which is why it's most common. Makes a lot of sense. You can't Mm -hmm. destroy it. So when I look at oil, I think oil is going it's not going to zero. It's going to five bucks a barrel. It's going to 10 bucks. A barrel. It is the most manipulated. People are like, Oh, Bitcoin's manipulated. Yeah. 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 Like you're, if you're an oil trader, you're an oil macro guy, like get the fuck out of here. <laughs> the most, they literally have the OPEC. Yeah. Like, oil, like we're you, making, like, we're making universal laws to go completely electric on certain vehicles. Just to, I mean, that tender is already, already on pal. <laughs> and Saudi Arabia is calling up people like, "Hey, we should cut. We should cut the oil supply. We should limit the oil supply so they can't get any, so the price will go up, and then we'll just give them just enough." Like, yeah. are you? They're manipulating in front in our in front of our eyes, but we're we're used to it, so we just accept it. But people are like, "Oh, Bitcoin's manipulated by the whales." Uh, have you seen Saudi Arabia in the oil? 
That's what I thought. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so mine is mine is oil. I got it from my buddy Brian, um, your friend as well. Uh, very very smart guy, very intelligent, and uh, yeah, uh, I completely agree with that thought process. That oil will be insignificant in the future. I think a company too that I wanted to highlight before we move on. I know we've already been on this topic a minute. Uh, is Apple? I think Apple will also save us from like. I don't want to call it the race war, but just like the general social media pandemic that's causing people. I, I'm not talking about addiction necessarily, but talking about like the negative addiction that's getting people from this computer to out on the street with a gun, you know, like that type of addiction for that social media creates through a negative echo chamber and this tunnel that weeds you down, you know, flat earthers and all that. Like Apple, Apple still kind of has this wholesome holistic feel about it while, while you feel like they're just like this megla, giant with all this cash and they are but they, they they tend to have at least you know the right side of the philosophy in terms of how people should protect themselves and what data they should give up and uh, i think that's going to be one that continues to be around for a long time and help save probably you know world war three or at least the next civil war hopefully that never happens yeah big, uh, apple gets banged on a little bit because you know they're the first two trillion dollar or trillion dollar company and i think they're two trillion like they're actually really good when you start to yeah, think about like what they do versus what what facebook and google does pretty pretty good company and like they've like the, they developed like they put some privacy things and facebook's like wait you can't do that our app doesn't work anymore <laughs> go fuck yourself yeah it's you know as much as it's everyone's party it's their house you know you have the phone it controls everything so anyways let's move on uh chapter two zero to one so, is a this is a fun chapter, chapter two. Uh, party like it's nineteen ninety nine. You wanna you wanna chime in on any of this, or do you want me to you want me to begin? All right, I'll I'll jump in on this one first. Party like it's nineteen ninety nine. This is a fun chapter for me because it kind of relived the dot com bubble and uh, and how companies in the dot com world were. Or just, you know, you put .com in your name back in 2002 and you, your, your company was jumping, you know, 50, 60% overnight. And uh, it talked about, this is a fun topic, how the NASDAQ reached, you know, 5,000 points. And then three weeks from there, it fell at 3,300. So yeah, well, first off, uh, I didn't understand. You good? My f- first off. I didn't understand the Prince song until I listened to this chapter of the book. So party like it's 1999 Sorry. Out of time. You know, like, Oh wow. Wow. It was really bad times back then. Or they were, people were really confused with what, what was going on. Um, I look in here and you know, you get the 1999, you had the um, migration of investments in the U S from bricks to clicks. Okay. So brick and mortar online, I'm really interested. It mentioned something about the economical crash of Thailand. And it's like, I need to go back and like do some more research. Cause I'm really, I, I love crashes for some reason. I was always fascinated in crashes. history, like by the, by the 1929 stock market crash. I don't, I'm just fascinated by like why herds of people decide like, Nope, we're out. Like, how do we, uh, somebody has got to trigger that. So um, then you had 1999, which is the launch of the Euro, which is, I mean, actually, it's stronger than the dollar right now, which is uh, tells you how bad a spot we're in. Uh, and then you got the dot com mania. Uh, I one of the early memories that I have, you know, mid teens. I remember my mom making a comment about my grandfather and my grandmother losing a good amount of money in the dot com mania. So when I bring up Bitcoin, it's a very sore subject to them because they feel similarities because they don't understand fundamentals. 
That's a good breakdown. Uh, what I got from this chapter, probably like it's 1999, it was the dot-com bubble. You talked about all these investments. It was like, you know, the highlight of Wall Street companies. If you just added dot-com to your name, we're just growing like wildfire. It was like when Bitcoin first started and people were adding, uh, what was the word they were adding to, to their names? Uh, Overstock did it. Uh, uh, blockchain. Well, blockchain, you had blockchain to your name and everyone just was getting, you know, 25X overnight. Um, it was just interesting to see how it all just collapsed and how, you know, product really is more important than sales. But there was this quote in there about this guy named Nishi and he says, insanity in individuals is something rare, but in groups, parties, nations, and epics, it's the rule. And you're like, holy shit, you're right. Like there's an old rule with men is like, whenever there's like more than four guys in a room, just stupid shit happens. Right. It's like, you would never do that by yourself, but more than four guys in a room, everyone's doing it. You're like, why, why, why would they do that? You're like, well, it's group think that's what it is. It's, you know, it's insanity, but, uh, it was just a cool playback on our memory. I mean, obviously, I was very young at this time, but I do remember this vaguely. Uh, it was just good to hear Peter Thiel talk a little bit about it. So I don't have much more to talk about on that subject. You want to chime in? Here's the one thing I want to I go into, and it's about PayPal and X.com. So they merged. X.com was Elon Musk. PayPal was Peter Thiel. PayPal and X.com, they were both created to create a new digital currency as an idea evolved the currency became a method of transferring funds via email so they ended up becoming a payment channel they were trying to be a completely new currency i just we're going to go down a rabbit hole a little bit later so i just want to foreshadow x.com and paypal set out to create a new virtual digital currency but they ended up and that's why they ended up selling they only had like 14 people and they sold the company for like 180 million dollars that's why they that's why they all had so much money that's why elon musk built 17 you know why he built four unicorns in you know less than a decade that that's how we did that's how they did it so yeah no that's I'm, I'm excited to talk about that later we have lots of thoughts to talk about in this chapter uh all happy companies are different this is really cool this is just a pure mentality stage you, you talked about it briefly about monopolies and how monopolies actually are good for society and you know the main theme from this entire chapter is just coming from a hedge fund manager and guy who, as someone who starts a lot of companies is you know Monopolies are really just a condition of every successful business. If you're good at your business, you'll become the monopoly. Like just no one could compete with Amazon right now. And you're like, they're taking over. I'm like, they have a really good business. Like I don't know any prime customer that's unhappy in all honesty. So think of it that way. When everyone's like bashing Jeff Bezos and you, you were talking about how important founders were earlier. I was listening to a podcast today. I hadn't texted you yet. I was so excited to talk to you about this. I listened to Michael Saylor and uh, Preston Pish for about an hour 20 minutes in, I was like, is this the smartest guy in the universe right now? Like Michael Saylor for 20 minutes, he sounds like a guy I know, like an Eastern Italian guy, uh, really soft-spoken, but like he gets it and he just understands monetary policy. And, uh, but he says it in such like uh, uh, small think, like low-level uh, low ways of thinking it. We were like, holy cow, he's really just like teaching it to a public classroom of people who could probably understand what he's saying. And then he can go into a different room and have just this elitist conversation and, and win both arguments pretty fluidly. So... Uh, it, it makes you think a lot about the mentality of, of, you know, when we say all happy companies are different, the mentality of like being in a monopoly and those people running those monopolies, like those people started those companies. Like those are, those are really well-run companies because the people running them are high level individuals, guys or girls. What, what did you get from that? And thanks for the Michael Saylor thing. I guess he's electric by the way. Yeah. Thanks to Michael Saylor. I, I, I have like, <laughs> I have like five Teslas in my Robinhood account now. Thanks to that guy. Yeah. I love to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, G going, yeah, D jumping into like the, 
the you said monopolies people always think monopolies are a bad thing and this is what i loved about what peter thiel said you know a company is a monopoly when they're saying oh we have all this competition and you know a company's not a monopoly when they're like we're the best in industry i'm like yeah, exactly. that is <laughs> fucking hilarious. that is so hilarious i'm like oh i've never thought about that yeah when you're like no no, no. we got a battle ahead of us now we're burying people this is so fun this is so much like we're Google. We got all this money. We're Apple. We got all this money. You guys can't stop us, but got a lot of competition. Yeah. How many Google. times do you see Google in front of Congress? Like, don't split us up. Come on, guys. I mean, we're, not, we're nothing. We have all this competition. And the guy's like, well, how, many, how many people say let's go bing something, you know? <laughs> I'm sorry. We're just that good, guys. So do, what's the punishment <laughs> for being good, you know? The government's just like, God, how did we not think of that? Well, because you're stupid. Uh, it's funny. The, the least monopoly of all the companies is facebook and the government's like yeah facebook break you up like well, we're, we're the we're the smallest monopoly of all of them you know and you're coming after <laughs> us so that that, that makes me laugh i really i really enjoy what's going i sold i was a big facebook shareholder i'm not anymore otherwise i'd be really pissed right now however you know all companies all happy companies are different right they they have a different mantra they have a different culture that's what i took from this is you you have um the reason why people are happy is because their jobs are easy right and they're all easy for different reasons you know apple's jobs easy because of the iphone google's jobs easy because of google the search engine facebook's jobs easy not really because facebook anymore because instagram right mm -hmm. they have really easy jobs and all they need to do is bolt on a little of this a little of that like the, the cake's already baked. You just put a little fancy flour on it here and there. And that's what I think. That's why I'm like, all, all companies are happy because their job's easy because they're a monopoly. And that's how I back into this. It's a little bit of an abstract concept versus what the chapter was trying to convey, but that's how it works in my brain. This is a good one. I'm going to transition this because I want to talk about this next chapter. And it's uh, it was probably my favorite chapter in the entire book, the ideology of competition. And uh, it makes you think a lot about what you do and, and how you get so competitive and like being competitive is a really strong suit. And it, you know, one of the good things is when I met you, I felt like you were like iron sharpens iron, right? Like you meet someone who's pretty much your equal in a lot of things you're doing and you really just kind of like you grow together. And it's, uh, it's really the genetic makeup of his, of his entire like big monopolies and big businesses need healthy competition. And, you know, competition is war. And I understand that war is costly for both businesses and time and resources. But like, if you have Coke and Pepsi, you can't break up just Coke. So you'll never get to break up those companies because you always have a definitive rival. And if you welcome those companies in, you, you two can help elevate each other's game. You know, one example they talked about was Apple. As soon as IBM came into the mix, they took out a full page ad in the New York Times saying, you know, welcome to the, you know, welcome to the, you know, the, the finer things club, basically. And uh, you think Pepsi, Coke, Bud Light, you know, Miller Lite, you always think that there's always like a yin and a yang and there's always some form of competition because those two things are making each other better and you want that competition because it not only, you don't get sedentary, but you continue to grow in your areas and uh, you can kind of find, find all the weaknesses that you have through auditing your competition. And uh, competition is the most healthy thing in the world and you, you should start it at a young age because the more competitive you get, uh, the more you're going to want later in the future is kind of how I took that. And it, it struck a little deep for me. So what about you? What I really liked about this chapter is it brought me back to our roots back in uh, living in the, in the quadruplex in Salt Lake city. Yeah. I believe you used to call it a condo, you know? Yeah. Church yeah. It up a little bit. On third. Um, we, we both believed in this company called square, right? We were just like, you know, this thing is going IPO and I see this thing everywhere. And it, now 
all these food trucks, all these little small businesses can take my credit card. I'm like, wait a minute, this thing's onto something. And little did we know they had a great CEO, Jack Dorsey. He ended up pivoting into a very much a core financial company and now even a, definitely a Bitcoin company. Um, but it, it talks about like Square, like they beat everyone to the punch, but they entrenched themselves so much being a little cell phone adapter. They got a bunch of copycats and that competition told me and told them in my, my mind that they were right. They beat everybody to it. And you can try to copy them, right? I can try to play basketball like Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant, uh, or actually Kobe Bryant is a great example of a copycat of Michael Jordan, right? He was really good, right? But he, he was just never going to be Michael. He was never able to eclipse that that persona he was the exact same player you've seen the the video on instagram where they all look exactly the like mm-hmm. they have the same moves it just shows that well kobe's excellent a greatness on the mount rushmore but you go back to like competition means like oh you're on to something people are yeah. coming after you like here we go like, and you feel it every day you wake up and you think like are they up before me working and like it drives you it really does drive you like you want to be you know, Kobe wanted to be Jordan. So, uh, unfortunately, in a lot of places, people idolize sports is a place that not a good place to do it because you idolize people with historic figures. So you can't really compete against them. But in like everyday business, like you know, Apple's fighting against all those other giants. I mean, if Apple wants to enter the phone business, they got Verizon and they got AT, all these other areas in which I mean, they're just competing on every level, and it's crazy. And uh, the ideology of competition also generates you know monopolies to some degree and. You know, moving into the next chapter, it talks about the last mover advantage, and uh, this is a really good topic. This is a really good topic because uh, when you think of the last mover advantage, uh, this is really how you evaluate fast-growing small companies. And the question he kept asking, and you know, every time you evaluate some something, is like, will this business still be around a decade from now? That's all he says every time he looks at a company. Will this will this business be around a decade from now? And he talks about like the characteristics of a monopoly, and every time I walk through those four characteristics that he chatted about. I kept thinking about Bitcoin and you and uh, the first characteristic being proprietary technology. You know, is this, is it making, is it making a significant improvement on top of what's available? The next was just like the network effects and as the number of users increase, it makes the product as a whole more valuable and the social networks that help leverage this and help people join and it becomes more and more and more valuable. And the irony behind that is like in order to leverage these network effects, you actually need to focus on small target demographics, like a niche in order to grow it because you're so big. Uh, does it have economies of scale and then branding with it? Those are the four, it, those are the four characteristics of a monopoly. And that's how you can put them against any company. And then you ask yourself, will this business still be around a decade from now? So that was the last mover advantage. That was a really unique uh, chapter. What would you, you think about it? So I'm going to go in, in two topics first, or I'm going to come back to Bitcoin. But first, the last mover advantage is completely exemplified by Apple. Mm-hmm. Apple is crushing it at last mover advantage fitbit comes out goes to 50 dollars a share a multi-billion dollar company apple takes its time comes out with what's on my watch or what's on my wrist an apple watch a significantly better product than fitbit beats by dre comes out all these headphone things come out apple buys beat by dre's because they have the reason why they bought beats notice how they don't promote beats anymore mm-hmm. they promote the airpods why? Because Beats had a very specific piece of intellectual property that 
Apple couldn't figure out. So they bought Beats, right? So Beats connected really easily to your iPhone. Apple couldn't quite figure that out. Beats figured it out. That's why they paid them a billion dollars. Nobody knows that. Everybody's like, whoa, they're a cool product. I don't see Beats anymore. Do you? <laughs> they're around, but I think it's just all the refurbished versions of what they're trying to just eradicate from you know new sales. The, the, what's around now is the i is, is the AirPod pros or the airpod maxes like that's what's all coming now because they had to buy beats by dre to get that specific piece of technology that they didn't have as they couldn't get because of the patents so that's why they bought it but last mover advantage is what apple crushes on google has definitely done some of this stuff facebook has definitely def- done some of this stuff like, amazon yeah amazon they just let you guys come into the market and then we just pounce on you and we take you out out of the game like oh you're getting better oh yeah wham gotcha yeah, it's it, it's an infinite game for these guys too. Like, think of Apple and like how how slowly they really move into new products. Like, you don't see new Apple products every single day. Like, yeah, you get the iPhone 11, iPhone 12. It's still an iPhone, but I'm talking like when they want to dive into the next thing. You know, they still maintain strong control over all of their touch points. Like, their control ranges from physical to digital. And you know, every time you go to the App Store, like they're the ones who allow any company in the world that they think is valuable to get onto their app store to download. Like they have incredible control. They have economies of scale. Like that's, you're right. That is probably the number one company uh, to be the last mover in every category they get into. <laughs> then I want to, I want to go into what you mentioned. It just happened. We read this book where we talk a lot about Bitcoin on this podcast, just because you know what, since we started this podcast, I think Bitcoin's up a bajillion, you know, so. so <laughs> yeah, probably. So, so I think it's, it's only fair. You look at what Bitcoin is. So we, we start looking at these things, right? Um, they challenge the future. We're going to go back. I'm going to go top to bottom. They say, wait a minute. Why is the dollar the currency that everybody else uses? The dollar's only been around as we know it today since 1949 since Bretton Woods. Uh, well, actually, since 1971, since we went off the gold standard. So we decided, wait a minute, can we des- develop a, can we use technology to do something a little better that, that'll fix the dollar? So we're going to go straight up. We're just going to take all of the monetary, what is money? We're going to start from there and we're going to build straight up from what is money. Then we're going to look at, you know, well, there's all these different things and like competition and, there's a lot of comp competitors in the, in the, in the currency realm, right? You got the Euro, yeah. you got the Yuan, you got the Australian dollar, you got yeah, the peso, yeah. you got the Brazilian peso, all this stuff. And it's like, well, what if we just make it better? Well, every, what makes us different is that we don't inflate. We actually deflate. There's a fixed number account, a unit account. So people can fix their mental model around Bitcoin. So then you look at like the ideology of the comp- competition. So I kind of skipped ahead there, right? The dollar is this fiat currencies with this. I would say that. Fiat, yeah. So then you look at last mover advantage. Bitcoin was not the first cryptocurrency. It, it, it was not the, like X.com and PayPal. were trying to do this back in 1999, 2000, 2001. Bitcoin was the first one to figure it out figure out the advantage bitcoin was the first one you mentioned something about being 10x better bitcoin mm-hmm. was the first one to be 10x better than fiat currencies take some time everything does grow like when paypal sold for 180 billion to ebay back in the day they weren't they're not what they are now right 
It yeah, took them, it, it's, definitely, it's definitely more significant than what the current options are out there, for sure, 1,000%. What I now I want to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole here. Yeah, You're gonna make fun of me. Uh, yeah, probably. So, I was on Twitter the other day, and something came across my feed: is is Elon Musk Satoshi Nakamoto? And then you start. I started crawling down the rabbit, hole and I was like, "Yeah, all right, you got me here. I'm I'm yeah. I'm in." Alice, social dilemma one hundred one. You got thirty minutes. Go ahead. Roger Rabbit. Here we go. I don't need 30 minutes. So you start wandering down. You understand what Peter Thiel and Elon Musk were both trying to do at PayPal and X.com. They were trying to create a new digital currency. That was back in 2000. Mm -hmm. So what happened is they merged because they were smart enough to know like there's a wave that we're going to get wrecked here. We should just merge and sell our companies instead of battling against each other. They did that. Bingo. They're very smart people. Um, well, they signed long-dated um, non-compete clauses, so they couldn't get back into the industry, right? Uh, so 10, 20, I don't know how long they are, but long-dated. So anyway, when you now go look at Satoshi Nakamoto and his history, Hal Finney, big proponent of Bitcoin early on, first guy to tweet running Bitcoin, you start looking at like, okay, well, who is he talking to? And if you look at the guy he was talking to, Satoshi Nakamoto, his IP addresses were very close to where Elon Musk lived in that range. <laughs> Elon or Satoshi Nakamoto officially signed off in 2008, which is when SpaceX got their first government space exploration contract. So I'm just saying, is it a coincidence? Probably. But is it fun to think about? When I read this book, I'm like, well, what was no one else thinking about? Hey, we need to create new money because what the government's doing to the money is fucking it up and it, it's ruining everyone's lives that we can't see. Okay, check. Um, well, what if we create, you know, you start going down the list and it's like, hmm, check, 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 check. Like, just where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah, it's you definitely went down a an affirmation hole of continue to feed me. I have this fire, but you just can keep throwing wood in there. And you know, it's like, Hey, do you believe in aliens? Well, what about these like crop circles? And then what about this? And then what about that? And you're like, yeah, there's probably aliens out there. Is it Elon? I was, he's smart enough to be that guy. You know, like you ever hear him interview and you're like, this guy's just different. You know, he's just completely different. And he would be the guy who would make a 20 year pledge to something and, you know, and actually see it through. One of the original PayPal mafia members. Uh, Reed Hoffman uh, created LinkedIn, sold it for bajillions of dollars to Microsoft, uh, has a lot of Bitcoin. Uh, Peter Thiel has a lot of Bitcoin. Uh, those guys know Elon Musk very well. I'm just saying Satoshi Nakamoto deleted his private keys. He doesn't need the money, so he deleted it, right? He never has to come back. and cl- Everybody's like, well, what if he just decides to come back and claim that money because it's a lot of money? Well, joke's on you. He doesn't need the money. He's never coming back. To fuel, I, know, I know I'm crazy. To fuel you real quick, though, Elon Musk is that guy who publicly everyone watches and knows that he doesn't care about money. Like, he literally, like, he gets all this money and just puts it back into something else. Like, he just, like, he's the guy who sold everything. He says, I'm selling my house. I'm selling all my possessions. I'm selling everything. I don't need all that. I become more of a target. I just want to live like you guys. It's just energy from the earth. And you're just like, what the fuck says that? Like, but then he does it. And you're like, yeah, he really actually believes that. Oh, he's yeah. like the you, you remember Howard Dean I think he's like and we're going to Michigan and yeah. we're going to Pennsylvania <laughs> yeah. like Elon Musk is like and we're going to Mars yeah. Yeah. now it's Austin Texas and I was like, 
Yeah, I could, I could definitely believe him. So that's a good tangent. I I'll think about it more. Um, I, that's I, a, I climbed down the rabbit hole. I can't find the email on Google anymore. So they found they knew that I knew. So they you know Illuminati Illuminati got me. You got the government notification like hey you up. Hey, right, let's return to this regular that. scheduled program. <laughs> All right, next next uh, chapter. You are not a lottery ticket. This was a great great chapter. Something we talk about all the time. Um, and, you know, luck is what preparation meets opportunity. It's the mantra of our our podcast. And uh, you know, you are not a lottery ticket. Really defines you know definite optimism and indefinite optimism and indefinite pessimism and all these things. And uh, really, what he talks about the entire time of being someone who's built companies and being with people who built companies is you know victory just a way to just to wait the person who has everything in order people who other people call it luck but you know when you have everything ready and you're just ready to fire and you're you have the capital and you have the prowess and you've just been grinding and grinding and all of a sudden the game comes like that guy wasn't lucky when he hit the last shot like he prepared for that moment and uh you're not a lottery ticket like the world right now is in this indefinite optimistic view and it's just waiting for people to come on and start something new that would eventually elevate society so uh he doesn't really believe in luck at all he just believes you create your own luck just like we think so what did you get from that? Yeah, long, long story short from this chapter is uh, the reason the U.S. did so well is they were very high and, like, definite. Like, you had to, like, this wasn't going to last forever. You had to do very well. Um, and they also were high in optimism. Like, so, oh, no, they were, sorry, they were low in optimism. So they didn't think everything was going to be great forever. They were like, hey, we got to grind it out now. We got to work real hard. We got to save. We got to do what we got to do and things aren't always going to get better, but we got to, we got to prepare for those rainy days. And we know based on coming out of Corona, a lot of people were not prepared for the rainy days, they just weren't. And um, that's why America did so well right after the wars. They all said, Hey, we could go right back to war tomorrow, but we got to prepare for those days. And it it sounds, I feel a little boomerish here, but those, virtues and those values do absolutely reign true. You got to prepare for the rainy days. And if you don't, unless you're a bank, they're not always gonna, always going to be there to bail you out. Well, I guess now it's a cruise line airline or airplane producer. So he even has testimonials about all these successful people. And you hear successful people like Malcolm Gladwell, Buffett and Bezos and Gates talk. And like, he's like, Gladwell's like, well, when they asked him about being rich, he's like, success is results from lucky breaks and arbitrary advantages. Buffett talks about being a member of the lucky sperm club or the ovarian lottery. Bezos is like, oh, it's an incredible planetary alignment, half luck, half timing to the rest of my, half timing and the rest is my brains. Bill Gates thinks he's lucky to be born with certain skills, but none of those guys actually believe that. Those guys are more like definite optimists. Like they, they want to be the monopoly of one. They don't want to be well-rounded. So yeah, it was a, it was a cool chapter, interesting chapter, how, how people successful, wildly successful people think. And uh, pessimism is really the reason why most people fail. I mean, you could probably agree with that. Well, this is why I like doing this podcast is we read something, right? I come up with this. You, you probably didn't expect me to go where I went with what I did, right? No idea. And I went on mute for a minute, <laughs> which was good. I wanted to hear it. But it's just a different, like, you try to put yourself like, right, you're giving me your perspective very different. My perspective is this. I'm like, oh, well, that's why they were so, that's why the economy was so good from the 50s to the 70s. People are talking about this Republican president or this Democrat. No, it was the framework people were in. And exactly what you just said is like, I, I'm going to joke, like, I've had some success lately. And I'm like, I'm just lucky. I'm lucky. Yeah, you know, that's but, what you tell people, but you know in your mind, I'm like, I'm lucky. Are you grinding? Are you kidding me? 18 hours a day, you know, 
They just see I, you with the bottle pouring it on TikTok. You know, I'm like, or, I never fucking miss. I'm not fucking selling. <laughs> I never fucking miss. That was a good one. All right, chapter seven. You want let's transition. Uh, follow the money. This is the general rule in life, really. Uh, following the money. It's the eighty twenty rule. If people don't know what the eighty twenty rule is. Uh, it's basically like 80% of your sales come from 20% of your clients, you know, or 80% of the money comes from 20% of the population. Uh, you know, the rich people have pretty much everything. Uh, that's what it talks about. Um, I don't know how much more to expand on this. Um, this is a quote I got from this that I tweeted on our pod Twitter a little while back was in business money is either an important thing or it's everything. Uh, people who are afraid to make mistakes never grow. I thought those were two good quotes from this chapter that I just highlighted uh, something I keep in my back pocket for rainy days. What about you? No more needs to be said. The 80-20 rule, if you don't know it, this isn't what this podcast is right now. Um, go go Google it. Go look it up. Go prepare yourself to get a little lucky. Uh, nails it down. 80-20 yeah. rule is everywhere in life. <laughs> uh, all right, chapter eight, secrets. This was a good one. Uh, it's just the magic ingredient. What makes business is what people think. Um, this whole chapter really is, uh, you know, a secret is just the truth in which very people, very few people agree with, you know, uh, in order to uncover secrets, you should be looking for them is what he's saying. And, uh, there's a quote in this chapter that I used on a former employee because I thought it was perfect. And he says like, you always see weak, weak and uh, underperforming employees when, you know, signaling that work is being done becomes a better strategy for career advancement than actually doing the work. Uh, and that's, you know, everyone, it's in every industry where everyone has their, like their dick boss or just like people they work with. You're like, this guy's never doing anything, but he's always talking about how busy he is. That's very ubiquitous. I'm sure you have that in your industry. I have to assume, right? I try to brag about how I, well, I don't have anything going on right now. Nothing needs to be attended to. Yeah. Oh, is the chimney clear? Then the chimney doesn't need to be sweeped. That's how I roll, you know? <laughs> you know, what's funny though. He, he, he had something in this chapter that I actually loved. He says, you are paid by how hard you are to replace, not by how hard you work. Think about that for a second. That's, that's how, that's where you are. That's how you as an employee are valued is how hard you are to replace, not just how hard you work every single day. Obviously I paused the audio book when I was listening to it. I was like, how hard am I to replace? And I was like, oh. Well, they think I'm hard to replace. I got to keep uh, that going. Objective audit. Objective audit. I'm great. <laughs> uh, no, I, this is a, we're joking right now, but this is a very core concept. I hate when people say, oh, I'm so busy at work. I'm like, yeah, I could replace you with a sponge. Like we don't, we don't need you to be busy. We need you to get work done. If you're busy, you're not doing anything. You're not getting it done. You're just, you're just juggling. You're just, jugglers are busy there's always something to be done. Yeah, no, I agree. Like there aren't really like people do talk about how they want to be this, that, and the other, but then they, their actions are completely different than their words. They tell it to you, but then they go home and they watch Netflix from you know four to 10 at night, have like six beers and fall asleep. And that's like five days a week. You're like, dude, you're not, you, you keep telling me you're the smartest guy in the world, but you're not showing me it. You just have one stream of income and you're just, you're just relying on that to, to grow horizontally and hopefully you'll make a million dollars when you're 45 and become something that you're just completely unqualified for. And I, I see it every single day, not just in my current profession, just in the world, people we talk to, they're, they're second and third degree uh, people that they're you know linked in with. And it, it's just, it's commonplace. That's why the middle class is the largest class, <laughs> in my opinion. I, it goes back to the secret thing, like, or I guess go back to the, create someone that no one else believes in 
the iPhone. Nobody believes in the iPhone when that thing came out. It was only on Sprint or it was only on one of the networks. It was on like the middle tier network. It wasn't even available in the SEC. It was like, oh, you can't run the spread. It's not in the SEC. It was a similar <laughs> situation like that. And they were saying, no, nah, everyone's going to want this because we're an MP3 player. We're a phone. We have all these other applications on it. Uh, and in 20 years, you'll be able to order a phone no matter where you are. You'll be able to order a car no matter where you are in the world. And that's just what we're going to do. And you got to be able to be creative. You have to think if if you are in your organization and people are like, oh, we've done it that way before. The core core comment I like to make when people are like, hey, have you ever thought about this? What I like to say is, hey, we've done that, but maybe we didn't execute it correctly. So maybe you try it again because I try myself, ah, we've done it, it didn't work. You know what? We tried it. Maybe I didn't do it correctly. Maybe you have a better idea how to execute it. Why don't you run with it? That's a core concept you need to have in your life. Same thing with the secret. Maybe he knows the secret that you didn't know. It's a good acquired trinket of knowledge you just shared considering like you had to have learned that from someone, a boss or, you know, someone above you that, that's, that sprays that to the world because that's, that's an acquired trait that you learned. You, you, you have to learn that, you know, it's like upgrade. It's like being in Pokemon. You got to get to level 50 to learn that trait. Like it doesn't, it doesn't come with the package in the beginning. I learned that because I didn't want to be the guy that said, we've done that before. It didn't work. And I was like, well, wait a minute. If we've tried it before. Hmm. So I, I, I only learned that because I didn't want to be the guy that said we've done that before and it didn't work. I wanted to be the guy like, well, how do I say we've done it before, but it didn't work. And I was like, well, maybe we didn't execute correctly. So I'll, I'm going to put that on like a book or something and sell that <laughs> for millions of dollars. So that's mine dibs. Mine dibs. Well, talking about just managing management, the, ne- the next chapter was foundations. And I thought it was cool. You just talked about foundations matter. So when you're starting a startup and you're doing a, you're running a business, uh, there's a lot of things that go into it, but your founders, you know, these people matter. They should share their prehistory before they start a start a company together. There should be a lot of complementary skills. Uh, he also kind of dives into startups and you know the conflicts that startups usually stem from. You know, a misalignment of a handful of things. Some of it is just ownership. Uh, some of it's possession, like who controls the day-to-day operations of the company. And some of it is just pure control, like who, who formally governs the company's affairs, the board of directors, the founders, who is it? There's a lot of, what we don't see at the lower level when you're middle management or you're just even a little bit higher up management is like in that board of directors, there's a, there's a lot of civil war going on. There's a lot of politicizing. And like, it's not just what you say, it's who you rub shoulders with and who, you, who you've kind of treated with and the alliances you have and the boardrooms of those startups could, those are, those are foundations for really successful companies, but they're also foundations for, for companies that crumble one, two, three, four years in because they just couldn't figure it out. They just they had all the ingredients, but mentally they didn't work. It's like watching the Philadelphia 76ers with, with Embiid and uh, who's the other big man? Ben Simmons. You're like, God, these guys are world-class, but you know they just fucking hate each other. I don't know. I mean, that, that's what I know. When people say that, oh, I don't like corporate politics, it's like, you're just a bad employee. Yeah, like, if you no, for like sure. it, if you don't like, like, if you are a good employee and you care about how well the company does, you're just good at corporate politics because you understand what it takes for the company to be good. You can't just be smart. Like, a million, millions of people are smart, right? Everyone, there's so many smart people out there that you just have to care more than the other person. The people that are good at politics care more about their idea than the other per- person. That's that's what it comes down to. And I just came up with that off the top of my head. Thank you. <laughs> 
Woodford Reserve. Woodford Reserve. I, I have a little comment for you though that I thought you'd enjoy. And he talks about in this chapter is like high, like being a CEO, like high CEO pay encourages CEOs to behave like politicians. So like you should not, you should try to never pay your CEOs way too much money. They also like when you pay them in cash, it encourages short term thinking rather than long term value creation. Like CEOs should predominantly be set up with a lot of equity stake because when the company goes, they go. When the company falls, they fall. So I thought that was a good point in the in the chapter. Uh, we're beating this drum to death, but Elon Musk. Yeah. It's all it's all stock equity and Tesla and SpaceX and the boring company and space wh- whatever company he has. That's all his <laughs> that's all his ownership is. That's all his wealth is. Like his job is to create wealth through his companies. Uh, I want to go to this uh, control because you mentioned a CEO earlier, a uh, mm-hmm. brilliant guy, Michael Saylor. Yeah. Uh, the reason he was able to do what he did is he bought. He basically bought 40,000 Bitcoin from at an average cost of like 15,000. He was able to do that because he had control still of the board. He was so smart. He was able to build this company without selling too much equity to other controlling entities. And he was able to make control, maintain control. I don't know how he knew this. Uh, got in trouble 20 years ago with the SEC, paid an $8 billion fine or $8 million fine, I think. Uh, anyway. He knew because we've heard how smart he is based on talking like his ideas and how he explains things. He's like, wow, I didn't even think about it that way. And it's like, that makes so much more sense. He knew to keep control of his company because he knew there was a day coming where he could capitalize on the value of directing the company down the correct path to shareholder wealth. Yeah, and he, he, I mean, it was crazy listening to him today talk about like U.S. domestic policies and the EU policies and how they interact with each other and just kind of the loopholes between them and just uh, the inflation rates on certain things. And he just, he breaks down, he broke down inflation today for like 20 minutes and made the easiest. He's, he's just like, inflation is something that you want to acquire in the future. So it's like, hey, do you, do you want to buy this house in the future? That's inflation. You know, he just like goes through it and you're like, oh, it's like, yeah, that's what that is. Everyone thinks of inflation as this term they don't really understand because it's a percentage and it's just going up. They don't really know what it means. And he just kind of gives it to you. He's like, listen, you want to buy drinks? You want to buy weed for this girlfriend? Well, that's inflation. You want to do this? That's inflation. Like things that you want to do are inflation. Things that you don't want to do, don't worry about those. So it's like the way he described it was pretty incredible. Yeah, it's like uh, the CPI, like they do inflation is like milk and gas it's gallons it's all it is it's like well what is gas and what is milk it, well the price is going down it's deflation <laughs> exactly uh let's move forward this is a short chapter the mechanics of mafia uh it, not much from it really just talked about uh the early paypal team is known as the paypal mafia valley because all the members of that team were such a cohesive group that they all went on to start other companies like youtube and palantir and tesla and linkedin and yelp and those are all companies that were formed from this like cult-like company of PayPal that fostered this awesome culture that had, uh, had everyone on the right path, had like-minded people solving problems, and these guys all became best friends. And when they went on to run all these other, run all these other companies, they had funding and uh, they had a foundation built of other investors. So that, the mechanics of a mafia is just like, you know, if you can bring everyone in the beginning, how I understood it is if you can put everyone in this one company and foster each other and grow it when everyone does leave, you'll be a part of that success in the future. Yeah. I think you got to build that underdog culture. You know, they talk about slogans a lot and you got to yeah. build that hive mentality. It's like, think about, remember the Alamo. They, they never said a chance, but they fought like, you know, hell. Um, I, I look at the Bitcoin guys 
like on Twitter, it's like have fun staying poor or they have all these, you know, few understand, sorry, few understand. You just don't, you just don't understand. Only few get it, you know, but we're, we're smarter than you, you know, uh, you start looking at stuff like that. It, it's like these slogans, these mantras that corporations develop Nike, just do it just do it like they're taking the most crazy stances you've ever seen it's the most like racially charged times in our lives and they're like (laughs) colin kaepernick do a commercial now and their stock goes like boom yeah that's yeah no you're not wrong so there's a yeah go ahead i said that that's what i took away from that chapter and then the the paypal mafia and then reed hoffman being a big bitcoin guy and that's why elon musk is satoshi nakamoto yeah We'll, we'll, we'll probably dive into that. We'll have a whole podcast about that. <coughs> uh, if you build it, will they come? Uh, this is the next chapter. I actually referenced this chapter quite a bit in previous podcasts. We talked about sales and marketing. And uh, really, the whole point of this is, you know, have a good product. And he talks about uh, just advertising. Advertising works. Advertising matters. It, you know, why? Because it doesn't exist to make you buy a product right away. It exists to embed subtle impressions to drive sales later. If you can't acknowledge this, then you're just being deceived. And he talks about the difference between advertising and then there's like sales, which is like, it's just an orchestrated campaign to change service appearance without actually changing the underlying reality of what you do. Uh, it was really just uh, an accessory to the book and how you build your product and better have a good product. That was what he's talking about. And you better have good distribution. I'm going to try to be abbreviated here. Uh, marketing sales matter. Yeah. Um, the reason why he talks about this and the reason why like Silicon Valley and all these tech startups are all like product bros and this and that and developers, the reason why they hate sales guys is because they don't think sales guys are that smart. And they're, they're not, we're not, I'm a sales guy. I'm not that smart, <laughs> but I can convince somebody else to buy your product. I know how to com- I know how to communicate the value of that product to somebody else. And that's why I'm valuable. You're right. I could never develop the product, but I know how to use regular terminology to drive home the value of the product. And that's what they hate. Cause you know, we go out to dinners, you know, everyone's thinking like, Oh, they lived the life. I'm like, yeah, living the life, staying up till 2 AM doing shots with the guy who's going to buy your product. You're right. It sounds like a lot of fun until you're like, I just want to go home and go to bed and I got to be in at 8 AM. Cause if I'm not, everyone's gonna be like, Oh, the sales guy. Go to bed. <laughs> He's always golfing. Yeah. But the whole point of that golf is like, you're improving on your persuasion and your negotiation skills. And you're trying to acquire that client who could be a part of the 80, 20 rule. And I mean, just think of the shows you watch. Like everyone loves watching suits and billions. Why? Because you're watching guys in the courtroom just out negotiate each other and they're being persuasive and charismatic. Like, this is a fucking awesome show. I'm like, yeah, people are glued to, uh, to those type of salesmen and those are your sharks and companies. And that's why you're golfing because you're dealing with uh, people who have a taste for nicer things. So you're going to meet them on their field, persuade them to come to your field. And it's, it's, you're doing the right thing. You just have someone who's an engineer who's very binary looking at it and being like, well, okay, so just do that all the time. Well, I got to fix the product. I'm like, well, yeah, you're getting paid handsomely, but you're not good at persuasion and negotiation. You'll enjoy this statistic. There is fewer PGA professionals than there is billionaires in the world. Mm. Uh, I mean. So I'm just saying, what's harder, being a billionaire or being a pro golfer? <laughs> <laughs> being Tiger Woods and winning the Masters after all that, that's impressive. I'll tell you what. Yeah, but I also wanted to hit last last topic. Uh, it says the dead zone is the small medium enterprise, which we're going to call small businesses. 
don't try to build products for small businesses. Don't start there because they are so transactional. They don't understand long-term value. So get out of that business right now if you're in it. What you got to do is you got to go big and you got to fix it for big people or you got to fix it for, we got to go small and fix it for small people. And then you'll find your way to the middle. Never start in the middle. Yeah, that's a good one. Ah, that's a, this is a fun podcast. All right. Uh, man and the machine number 12. This was an AI, uh, an AI chapter. This is a, a big reason why I invested into Palantir early on and that why I own a lot of options on this, uh, two separate, uh, contract situations right now. But, but anyways, uh, I'm a big fan of AI. I'm a big fan of what AI, AI is doing. You think of Elon Musk and you think of these companies, uh, and people think, you know, computers are just going to, take over the world and it's going to be the next Skynet. And it's, it's not really like that. And what he tries to drive home is like, they're just, you know, computers are just complimenting humans. Like they're helping you solve hard problems or taking big data and they're putting it down into this small little uh, funnel where a human can take an emotion to it and actually make a calculated decision without taking data involved because the data is being run through AI and the humans taking the personal perspective of it, which is often right given information. So that's what like Palantir has done is it start to take large scale data on, on the highest level across cell phones across America and the COVID-19 uh, vaccination and scaling it down into pretty rudimentary uh, scale of uh, like a deck to look at. And then someone like you and I is going to make a decision off of it. And that's what AI is doing for us. It's, it's just far more advanced than a human can be, but it's just never going to have the, the, the human touch to it. So that's, I think they complement each other. I don't know how, what your blue system is. I'm stealing your line. And now I know where you got it from. AI, right. Can get a cat, right. 80% of the time, a four-year-old can get a cat, right. A hundred percent of the time. Flawlessly. Yeah. That's all you need to know. That's all you need to know with AI. It's like they are not, they are 80% as good as identifying a cat. Like they, they can't pick up on emotions. They can't pick up on persuasion. They don't understand these most, this is why I, like I think nuance I mentioned and all that. Yeah. Being smart is only half the problem. Getting people to do what you need them to do is the other half, whether it's buy, whether it's build, whether it's work for you, that, that's the real challenge in corporations is being able to take that step where you can be really smart. You can build this great, awesome product, but if you can't sell it, if you can't get people to work for you, you have no chance. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I mean, that's, that's a great analogy. I just think it's hilarious for you. Like, yeah, 80% of the time they can watch 10,000 YouTube videos. And they're like, yeah, my, my, my four-year-old does it flawlessly. Every time cat, 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 cat. So you're like, yeah, humans are smarter than AI in, in, in different perspectives. Uh, this, We'll move on to the next chapter. Uh, this is called Seeing Green, and this is a chapter I wanted to play play a game with you, really the Bitcoin game. It, the Seeing Green, it just talks about, uh, does it answer your seven questions? And if it does, you, you, you're probably, you have something. So let's think Bitcoin, right? I'm going to ask you the seven questions, and you tell me if Bitcoin passes the eye test. First question is, the first question is the engineering question. That, you know, is it breakthrough technology? Is it, is it creating incremental improvements over the current situation? It solves infinite fiat money supply, and two, it solved the digital scarcity problem with the double spend uh, in digital currencies. Yes or yes? Yes. Uh, the timing question, is the timing of Bitcoin, uh, is it the right time for it? It came in the world in 2008 when we printed, I think, $800 billion and probably more than that, and then it really, it really 
grew. It really kind of hit its third stride now, and I'm going to call it second main stage main stage stride during the um, great financial collapse of the Corona economy in 2020. Nice. Uh, the next is like the people question or the network question. Like, does it have? Is it on the right network for it to, to, to succeed? Cyber Hornets. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Been on Twitter. <laughs> As Joe Rogan says, yeah, you say something bad about Bitcoin, they'll fuck you up. <laughs> yeah, I, I see it every single day. That's a, that's a hard yeah, swipe, right? We'll go on that one. Uh, the distribution question is next. Uh, is, it says, do you have a way not to just create value, but deliver uh, the value to people? Yeah, Bitcoin was fortunate that it had a bunch of companies that said, hey, we should probably sell this to people and make a couple of bucks while we're doing it. Uh, distribution is no problem for Bitcoin. A little bit early on, but the, the payment rails solved itself real quick when people were like, yeah, people will want this stuff. So no problem with distribution. You said a little bit early on, the next question is the durability question. Will your market position be defensible in 10 or 20 years in the future? Uh, it's been defensible for 10. It's kind of like the the Lindy law. Like the more times you perform at the Lindy comedy club means the more likely you are to succeed so i think the, the it's the lindy effect the longer you're around the better you are and it's been around for 10 years like you're going to try to come at it the occ i don't know if you read this yet on twitter the occ just came out the office of the comptroller of the currency just said that hey banks can use public uh, blockchains as well as stable coins to uh, conduct business banking wow. activity Oh yeah, it's huge. Yeah, yeah. It's massive. Yeah, government game packed. over. It's like let's, let's dance. Is that not the government's first research? kind of like touching of uh, like I know we're not touching it, but we touch the banks and the banks are touching it. So you know, yeah. you you want to use ACH and SWIFT? Well, uh, I'm just going to use G. I'm going to use the Gemini US dollar. I'm going to use the USDC. I'm going to use Bitcoin because it's just cheaper. So come at me, bro. Yeah. Yeah. And the final the final question is the secret question: Is have you identified a unique opportunity? Has it identified a unique opportunity that others didn't see? Others can't see inflation. They can't see inflation. It harms us, robs us of our wealth, robs us of our labor, robs us of our, you know, our production. You know, we produce things and inflation steals that, steals that energy that we put into society. Uh, as you can see, I stole that from Michael Yeah, Saylor. I was listening. I was like, that's a Michael Saylor comment. I mean, the homeboy was talking about Bitcoin today and inflation. He was even like... He went all into it and he even diced it up into like inflation is completely different for everyone. Inflation for a five, you know, five acre home in Kansas is nowhere near the same as inflation for, you know, 4,000 foot apartment in New York city and you know, in the Hamptons and all these, like inflation is completely different. So Bitcoin is something that can help solve uh, this type of, it's not inflationary, it's deflationary. So it can help you put that against it and you hedge against those things. And it's a, uh, yeah, I, I mean, basically the whole, the whole point of this chapter was, you know, if you, if you don't have good answers to any of those seven questions above, then you're just going to run into a lot of bad luck. I feel bad. Cause like we just walked our listeners into Bitcoin. Like you read this book, <laughs> I'm reading it the whole time. And I'm like, is this not just describe? Is this not the Bitcoin book? Like that's all I could think about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just describing Bitcoin. You just say PayPal and X and Elon Musk. You guys are trying to develop a new currency, but you kind couldn't quite figure it out. So you're like, well, here we'll take $180 billion between the 14 of us. Deal. <laughs> That's what I got out of it. Bitcoin's going to hit 75000 at the end of the year. I, I think it's going to be there. I'll take the over. Hit. Yeah. I don't know if it'll close. It'll hit more than 70. Uh, gentleman's agreement? Gentleman's wager here? What do you want to wager? 
Yeah, that's a you bottle. You need up your price target. You can go oh, higher if you want. A, b- a bottle of uh, Long Branch or what's the what's the Matthew McConaughey whiskey? I like. I'll, I'll do a little. I'll do a bottle of Long Branch if it hits seventy five thousand, or if it doesn't, you know. We'll just make it together. That's fine. <laughs> you just just plan on being at my house at like uh, April. I'll, I'll even give a date. I'm gonna be like it's gonna hit seventy five thousand. I don't like April anymore. I like. Oh, actually, we will be Week in Cancun. We're going to Cancun for my wife's thirtieth birthday. I love it. We're gonna be in quarter two. You're not even gonna wait till the NFL season in like September. Like, all right, we'll hit it then, and we'll just ride it out quarter three, quarter four. All right, I dig it. Yeah. May. <laughs> I think it's like May 29th. May 29th. May 29th. It's gonna hit seventy five thousand. It's gonna be over. You're welcome. Well, the name of the yacht that we're gonna be on will be called Bitcoin, right? Nah, Satoshi, Satoshi. or Nakamoto. That's yeah. good. <laughs> it might be the Musk. Might be the Musk yacht. Yeah. Uh, so the final, the final chapter, the founders paradox. I don't, it's really my, more of a closing chapter about just being a founder, being uh, you know the one who started this company and being tolerant. And uh, you know, he has a quote in there that says, "The single biggest danger for a founder is to become so certain of his own mythical qualities that he loses his mind." And, uh, I thought it was a pretty cool quote. But uh, founders might seem poor and rich, genius and idiot, or hero and villain all at the same time. You know, but that's but that's the paradox of being a founder. You're everything to the company. Like you're its arteries. You're you're all of it, and everyone's kind of looking to you for you know the Ten Commandments or what have you. Founders ultimately are extreme. They are the long tails. They're weak. They're they're kind of nerds. They might be idiot savants. So it's like, well, I don't understand what this. Like, I think of Ready Player One. Yeah. Think about the guy who created that company, and he's, he's kind of a little awkward, um, disagreeable. Which I definitely am. I'm disagreeable. I'll fight anybody who wants to. Like, I'm just like the ult, uh, uh, My my default setting is the devil's advocate. You say something. All right, let's just fight. I'm, I'll take the other side. Let's just go. Let's see who wins. <laughs> I don't know much about the other side, but I'm all in. No, I'm just, I just know you're wrong. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fade the public, um, right? No, I'm trying to, but charismatic, you know, rich, famous, like you named, they're all these very polar opposites, mm-hmm. like in terms of who the average person is. So uh, we're just taller than all average people. So we're probably should be founders, which is why we're the founders of this podcast. No, I'm no, just kidding. I, I, agree. I, agree. I apologize. I'm not. I've had, it's the, it's the third Woodford in me. It's getting me a little excited. I've handled myself well for as many cocktails as I've had. I'm pretty, pretty. Let's uh, take it. Let's wrap it up a little. I mean, that was probably one of my favorite books. Uh, I know. I don't know what our next book is. We'll probably talk about it offline. What was your general theme of the entire book? Would you? Well, I'm going to go it? even uh, a meta uh, overarching theme is we're giving you this book. This is what our takeaways are from it. We want you to go out, read the book, and get your own takeaways from it. Hit us up on Twitter. Let's talk about it. But ultimately, you want to find out, like, what's that zero to one for you? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you figure out, like, what you're going to invest in? What's the next thing that you see that nobody else sees? You cannot be a sheep. You cannot be following the herd. You will never, I shouldn't say, not never, but you will not experience, you know, generational wealth if you continue to just wade into the Amazons, wade into the Teslas, wade into the Tesla work for some people when it was contrarian, right? Wait into the apples. You got to go out and find your zero to one. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to prepare you. We're trying to help you find that opportunity so you can get a little lucky is what we're trying to say. Yeah. So finish this off. Let's conclude it with the podcast and our mantra. Well, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. So get ready.